Support for WIPR's podcasts comes from Brightview Senior Living. Since 1999, Brightview has proudly served Greater Baltimore with vibrant, independent living, assisted living, memory care, and enhanced care. Find a community near you at brightviewseniorliving.com. As I grew to be a teenager, I became more curious about my adoption and my original family. And when I was, I think, 19, my adoptive mother told me that I had been named by my mother. And my name was Sarah Elizabeth Matthews. And I got so excited. It was the first tangible piece of information I had about my identity. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Soup Storytelling Series podcast. I'm Laura Wexler. And I'm Jessica Hankin. And this week, we continue our series called Return to the Soup, in which we feature a memorable soup story and explore various fascinating questions with the storyteller. Before we get started, we want to do a quick thanks to the Park School of Baltimore, which has been a wonderful sponsor of the Stoop podcast. They are pre-K through grade 12, non-sectarian, awesome school. So our storyteller that we are returning to the Stoop this week is um, our friend and lover. No, that's not true. Although we have tried, <laughs> that's also not true. Uh, but our friend, our, friends, <laughs> our friend, Catherine Robertson, who is the Director of Human-Centered Design at Belize. We're going to return to her story that she shared in October of 2013, which was our It's a Mystery show at Center Stage in Baltimore. So seven years ago. So we had to really kind of rattle our brains. Take ourselves back. We are about to listen to the story, but we want to give you a quick warning. There's a little bit of sound fuzz, and I believe that is the technical term um, in the beginning of the story, but it goes away really quickly. So hang in there. You will be richly rewarded for your attention. I was a college student in 1968 in Richmond, Virginia, and that was in the fall, and later that fall, I found myself to be a pregnant college co-ed in Richmond. I'd been seeing a boy in Greensboro, North Carolina for a while, so I thought I should go and tell him. So I went to Greensboro and I didn't know exactly what to expect, but what I found was not so wonderful. I told him, I said, we're going to have a baby, and he said nothing. It was silence, and he turned and walked the other way. Well, being as young as I was, I went back to Richmond and went back to school, dancing and singing and taking all of my classes and basically acting like an ostrich with my head stuck in the sand. But when you're going to have a baby, it makes itself known pretty quickly. So that didn't last terribly long. I told no one what had happened to me, because I was trying to ignore it, thinking maybe it sort of might go away. And after Christmas, I came into my dorm room with the leotarded tights on, which I wore most of the time. And my college roommate took one look at me. I hadn't told her thing. She took one look at me, and instead of saying anything to me, she called my daddy. Well, my parents lived about two and a half hours away in a little town up in the valley called Front Royal, Virginia. And she said, you 
you've got to come down and see Susan, and you have to come tonight. Didn't say anything to him about why. Well, you have to understand that my daddy and I were like two peas in a pod. I was an only child. He was the apple of my eye. I could do no wrong in his eyes. We knocked around together when I was a kid, and the last thing I ever wanted to do was disappoint him and have him think that his good little girl had turned into a bad little girl. So I was really scared. So he came, and we went out to dinner, and we talked a little bit, and I looked down at my napkin, and he said, Sweetie, what's going on? And I got out my nerve, but I couldn't look at him yet, and I looked at my napkin, and I said, Teddy, I'm pregnant. And when I finally got the nerve to look up at him, he had a very soft look on his face, not what I expected. His eyes were a little bit misty, and he looked at me and he said, it's okay, it's okay. Everything's going to be all right. We'll take care of it. And I just want to tell you, Susan, you look really beautiful. So he went back home and prepared my mother, and they came to get me the next day. But in 1969, if you were a pregnant co-ed, you had to resign from school or you were expelled unless you were married. It was absolutely unheard of for you to be there and go to school. So I went back to my hometown, and my parents and, and the boys' mom, flurry of phone calls, a marriage was arranged, but the marriage didn't happen. And my parents arranged for me to go to an unwed mother's home outside of Richmond, Virginia, where I'd been in school. It was a very uh, remote place where I was. Well, we drove up. I had no idea what to expect. We drove up to this driveway, and there was this huge iron gate right at the end of the driveway. They opened the gate. We drove up the driveway, and there was another iron gate in the courtyard in front of the building. Walked up that. The door was locked. Opened that, let me in. My parents went one way to an office. I went another way into a wing where there were other girls who were pregnant, and it dawned on me I had been put in a super max prison for unwed mothers. And I was there the entire time I was pregnant until it came time for me to have my baby. Nobody prepared me for what was going to happen. I didn't understand labor. I didn't understand delivery but I knew that I was going to labor. So they put me in an ambulance in stealth mode and took me to Richmond to Johnston Willis Hospital. I went into a freight elevator with a sheet over me into a room by myself. They locked the door, said nothing. Eventually, a nurse came in with a tray and shot me up with enough drugs to kill an elephant. I was asleep was unable to experience the labor of my child, the birth of my child, and when I woke up the next morning, I was no longer pregnant. Nobody came in to say, Susan, you have a beautiful baby girl, but they brought me a bundle, and when I took one look at this child, it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. It was an unconditional love that I just had never, ever experienced in my life. And I named her Sarah Elizabeth Matthews. We went back to the maternity home. 
I mothered her for 31 days. I was her mommy. I sang her every Broadway tune I knew. <laughs> we danced to James Brown, who was my favorite, in the halls. I told her all about her family and about me, hoping somewhere that she would keep this in her head. And at the end of the 31 days that we spent together that were so joyous, I also would sneak out of my room at night, not allowed to go into the nursery, but I would sneak out of there and go sleep underneath her bed just in case she cried. So the end of the time came, 31 days, and a day came that I've come to call the terrible day. It was the worst day of my life. I was put in a car and taken to Richmond with my baby, and we went into the adoption agency building. They walked me into a room with Sarah and said, you can have a few minutes to say goodbye. Well, you can't say goodbye to your own child. So the only thing I really needed to do at that moment was to sing. So I sang one last song to her, someone to watch over me, and all of my tears landed on her cheeks and all of my kisses that I, I did everything I could to make her know how much I loved her. I turned around and walked out of the room. I couldn't see, but I signed whatever they asked me to. It took two people to get me out of the chair to walk me out of the building. I was so devastated. And as I looked to my right, I saw a car with a lady carrying my Sarah. And I thought, is that her mommy? Where is she going? But she was gone. I was born in July of 1969 in Richmond, Virginia. And I always knew I was adopted. I never didn't know. It was always part of my story. My brother was adopted, too. And my parents always knew they wouldn't be able to have children. And when I was a little kid, I was never curious about my origins and where I came from. But I was definitely not encouraged to be curious about it. After the terrible day when I went back to my hometown, I was armed with the knowledge from the unwed mother's home that I was not to ever mention this again. This didn't actually happen to me. I didn't really have a baby. Um, it was a secret that I was supposed to keep, and I was not allowed to ever mention Sarah's name again. Of course, that was impossible for me. So every morning for 44 years after the terrible day, before I even put my feet on the floor in the morning, I would look out to the universe and say, Sweet baby Sarah, wherever you are, your mommy loves you so much. And I eventually moved back to Richmond. I went back to school. I got my degree, and I was still dancing. And I loved to go to these dance clubs after class to have some fun. And one of the places I used to go was out in the West Hampton part of Richmond to a place called Phil's Continental Lounge. When I was a little girl, my grandmother, who I was named for, her name was Catherine, she would take me on these lunch dates on Saturday afternoons in the neighborhood where I grew up, in the West Hampton neighborhood of Richmond. And she would take me to this dark place with a lunch counter that I loved because it had York peppermint patties. And it was called Phil's Continental Lounge. As I 
grew to be a teenager, I became more curious about my adoption and my original family. And when I was, I think, 19, my adoptive mother told me that I had been named by my mother, and my name was Sarah Elizabeth Matthews. And I got so excited. It was the first tangible piece of information I had about my identity, never having been related to anyone on the earth before and never knowing where I came from. I got so excited. I called all of my friends together and said, I'm having a party. But really the party was just to tell them I have a name. (laughs) And I didn't know what to do with this information. It was 1990 and it was before the internet. And uh, I I had nowhere to go with that. So eventually I got married and I have three other children whom I'm crazy about. And my younger daughter was a great help to me, and we were moving my mother out of her house into a smaller place to live. And my daughter was putting things in a box to help. And she came out with this stack of postcards, and she said, Mom, you've never been to Europe. What is this? Well, part of the ruse that my parents had come up with to make sure everybody, there was tangible evidence that I was somewhere in the world. I took a trip to Europe, but I never went. I was, I was in the home in Richmond, Virginia, but the people who got these postcards, I wrote all these wonderful stories about where I'd been, total lie, every one of them, um, were sent to people in Europe, and they went around and posted them with postmarks and stamps from Europe. And my daughter had found this stack of postcards. So I had to say, you have an older sister named Sarah, and, and she was taken from me, and... That was the last conversation we had. She told her brothers and said, look, don't talk to mom about this because it really upsets her. So as I got into my 20s and there was the advent of the Internet, I hooked up with other adoptees online, some of whom are here tonight. And we taught each other underground, literally illegal methods of searching for family members because... In most states in the United States, if you're adopted, even if you're an adult, even if you're 44, you're not allowed to have your original birth certificate, find out any names of anyone related to you by blood, find out any other identifying information. What I was allowed, since I was adopted in Virginia, was I was allowed to have a narrative given to me by the adoption agency, which was several paragraphs describing physical descriptions of my birth parents and their parents and cousins and grandparents religious denominations, professions, ages, general non-geographic locations. So I knew my name was Sarah Elizabeth Matthews, and I knew they were somewhere in Virginia, but I didn't know where. And I went to the state and asked them for my non-identifying information because that's all I was allowed to have is non-identifying information, even though I was an adult over the age of 18. And what the state of Virginia gives you is not a narrative. They give you the actual photocopies of your original adoption records, with every piece of identifying information cut out with an X-Acto knife. So I have a ream of paper, a folder of paper that looks like Swiss cheese with all of her information cut out. (sighs) I think I lost my place there. (laughs) So um, in 2003, I hired a private investigator who had sterling credentials. She only worked for birth parents and adoptees trying to find each other. 
and she found some really impossible cases, including friends of mine who were sold illegally and never legally adopted. And I gave her all the information I had. And she came back to me and said, it is really weird. I have never had a case like this. With all the information you have and even a name, I can find nothing. You should prepare yourself that some of this might be fabricated. So I was despondent. That was 2003, and I let it lie. In 2012, my husband and I took a trip to Iceland, and he kept saying, you look like everybody here. (laughs) (laughs) And when you're adopted, that stuff happens all the time. You look like everyone here. I wonder if you're Icelandic. And we came home, and I ordered a DNA test kit from 23andMe faster than you could blink because I thought, oh, maybe I am Scandinavian. I want to know. And I got my results back, and I'm not. I'm all British and Irish, but (laughs) what I found out is, because 23andMe tells you other people that you're genetically related to, other users of their service, I was very distant cousins with a friend of mine, Leslie, who is a fellow adoptee. I'm six cousins with Leslie. What the hell? (laughs) And I said, I have a biological relative walking the earth, and she's a sixth cousin. I've got people more closely related to me than that. And so in May of this year, I enlisted the help of a woman who runs a database online that I'd been in touch with years ago, and she took all of my info, and within a few hours, she gave me the name of the man who turned out to be my maternal grandfather. And within a few hours after that, I found the name Susan Matthews. And the next day, I found her Facebook page. And even if you're not friends with somebody on Facebook, you can pay $1 to send them a message to something called their other inbox. So I did. I gathered a bunch of childhood photos and adult photos, and I sent her a message in the middle of a work day, and I don't even know what I said, and I hit send. Let's just get clear about this Facebook thing. I really don't like Facebook, and I had dumped out of it about a month before that because I really only used it to figure out what my children were doing. (laughs) But I wasn't getting much information, so I plugged it back in very shortly before this day, which was June the 5th of this year. And at my lunch hour, I checked the news, checked my email, checked my Facebook page. I did that. Couldn't find anything about my children, but I saw this blinking light up in the corner. And I opened this message, and I read the first sentence, and it said, My name was Sarah Elizabeth Matthews. I was born July 24th, 1969, in Richmond, Virginia, and I think you are my mother. And I looked down, and there were pictures of her that looked like me and pictures of her young that looked like me. Her hair was blonde then. And same blue eyes, same cheekbones. We love her red hair. I looked at the pictures. I ran out of my office. I threw up immediately. I came back to my desk and started typing as furiously as I ever have in my life. I have no more idea what I said typing than flying over the moon. All I could think was yes, yes, yes. 90 minutes after I hit send, I checked Facebook for probably the 100th time. 
right before I was about to call into a conference call at work, and I opened Facebook, and I saw the response from her, and she ended it with, thank you for whatever you've done to find me. I would like to find you right back. So the rest of the day, we were worthless employees, both of us. <laughs> we emailed furiously all day long and agreed that evening that we would talk on the phone at 8 o'clock. And she called me at 7.30. Because I simply could not wait another minute. Could not wait one more minute. And we've been inseparable ever since. Okay, so before we get into Ooh. all of the good stuff from Catherine yeah. Robinson, um, we want to thank Golden West, which is a restaurant on the Avenue in Baltimore, in Hamden, um, which has been making it through this pandemic with its window and its good food, vegan, Southwestern, all of that. So please go out and support them. And a real quick thing, they've been so, they have had such integrity. They shut down when they had a, an employee's roommate test positive for COVID. They shut down and did a, like a deep cleaning um, and got everyone tested before they reopened. Well, that's good. And we want to thank Baltimore Magazine, which has been a great sponsor of the podcast. Uh, you can find them on the newsstand at baltimoremagazine.com and check out all their reporting on the city. All right, let's get to oh it, God. Catherine this Robertson. So... Oh. We have you here. Um, okay, what was it like to hear this story seven years after you shared it, which is pretty much seven years after you met your mother again, yeah. Susan Matthews? It was really, it, it really transported me back to that time, that early heady time of just having met her and all these other family members. It was, um, it was almost like if you listened to a recording of your first date with the person you ended up marrying. Um, so you hear yourself operating sort of on a different plane and we were- Like an think, altered state. Right, right, yes. Yeah. And it was almost like you both kept on wanting to turn to each other and pinch each other the night yeah. of, like to be like, is this real? This is real. Like, I can't believe this is happening kind of feeling. Yeah, totally. Um, especially because I had been searching for 25 years and she had been um, sort of groomed as a very young woman, pregnant woman, to think that this would never, ever happen. So she just needed to put it out of her mind forever. You know, just forget that you ever had a baby. Just go away. It mm -hmm. never happened. Yeah. yeah, that's searching for 25 years thing. I mean, I, and I, you are the person that I turn to if I need to find <laughs> yes. anything yeah. about anyone about on the internet anyone. because <laughs> you have, you are like basically like a master detective level. You had to train yourself up pre-internet and then post-internet to search for her. Yeah. You know, now that I've moved to Virginia a few years ago, I had to get used to <laughs> hunting down my neighbors and acquaintances in a whole new set of judicial records. It's totally different <laughs> from Maryland. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah, so you mentioned moving to Virginia. So back up. Yeah. Back up. Yeah. Um, start with sharing this 
story. So you yes. guys meet. You guys meet in June 2013. We did. Can you, yep. can you take us through from then till now, just like hitting the big mile markers on what what's happened? Yes. So um, so that summer um, was a lot of um, meeting all of the extended family members. Because of course, Susan had to tell everybody in her family, hey, remember when you didn't see me for a long time or whatever stories were Remember when I was in Europe? Right, yeah. exactly. Um, she, so she had to tell, she was an only child. She is an only child, but she has lots and lots of very close first cousins. And so she had to, this was a, had a ripple effect. And she spent that summer essentially telling people, I mean, she told everybody right away, but then making sure that we were all in the same place and all these different configurations so that I could meet them and they could meet me. Um, so that's what a lot of that summer was. And then also she introduced You know what me. that strikes me as? It's like, that's what you do when you have a new baby. You make sure everybody in the family gets to see the baby. And essentially she was doing that with you, you know? That's right. And there were, I mean, there were plenty of jokes about that. Um, and uh, she even gave me uh, as a joke, a couple of like, welcome to the I don't know, new baby cards. And yeah, there was a lot of that. Um, and then she also introduced me to my birth father's family in North Carolina. Um, had, she, had she kept in touch with them? I couldn't remember that. No, it was not. It was a very fraught relationship. Um, okay. And then also it was a matter of my adoptive family getting comfortable with it. Um, and there were lots of um, varying ramifications of that. Uh, that still echo today um, because of the different reactions of my adoptive parents and, and other people in my family. So, well, so that yeah, yeah, like the positive being like, it seems like Susan and your adoptive father are, are friends, like, right? They get along, right? Yeah, they get along like a house on fire because they're both so very Southern. Um, and he loves to laugh and she loves to um, tease and flirt and make people laugh. Um, so, and, and they just like each other. Um, so anyway, so that was that summer and also meeting my siblings um, because Susan of course raised uh, two boys and another girl. Uh, oh, and my grandmother, two grandmothers. So it's, it was a lot. Um, and since then, uh, like we spent a couple of years where I would drive from with my husband, Ron, um, from Baltimore, where we lived, uh, to Winchester, Virginia, where Susan um, and her family lived. And so we visited- Also, also the birthplace of Patsy Cline. Correct. Um, <laughs> no, no relation, as far as we know. <laughs> no, 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 actually, we do know. Uh, we know okay. for sure now. There's no relation. Um, yeah, in fact, they they want to rename Jubal Early Drive, who is apparently one of the worst Confederate generals, to Patsy Klein Boulevard. Hopefully. Oh um, yeah, hell's yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I was living in Baltimore for a long time and drove back and forth to Winchester, which is a two-hour drive. Um, to visit Susan and get to know everybody. And um, to make a very long story short, uh, Ron and I were looking to move somewhere with a lot more land. And we decided, well, we should probably live near one set of our parents. And we went through all of our options. <laughs> and, and we decided, you know what, I 
didn't get to know Susan uh, until I was in my mid forties. And if I'm going to be near a set of aging parents, then let's move to the mountains. Let's move to Winchester, Virginia. So here we are. And now we all live in the same city and I get to see her and my sister, Tessa and her family all the time. And Tessa has babies now, right? Yes, Tessa is married. They've been together forever. And then um, she has two kids who are like one and a half and three and a half. So you went so from having a very limited family. I mean, you're, you had your adopted family, but it was a small family. So now this like mm -hmm. gargantuan Southern blonde family that looks <laughs> Icelandic, but is just British and Irish, basically. Correct. That is all <laughs> true. The DNA proves it out. Um, yeah, uh, I have family out the ass. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm 51 years old and I still have a living grandmother. Um, and that is Susan's mother who lives here in town. Um, and then I've become close to... Um, <laughs> I mean, it's still, I've only just, and maybe in the last six months, come to not have to hesitate when I say my sister, because I didn't grow up with a sister, or to mm -hmm. say my brothers and not be referring to the brother I grew up with. But anyway, so I've been getting closer to each of them in different ways. And um, when Tessa's first child was born, uh, I went over to the house and we were still very slowly building our relationship and she, they asked me to be his godmother, which made us all cry. Oh. Of course, <laughs> just like you made us all cry with your story. Um, so Would you say I mean, that you're doing a ton more crying since you met Susan? Like what's the amount of crying, like happy crying that has happened? Um, I mean, not really recently at all, but, um, you know, cause there's this thing called the pandemic. So <laughs> <laughs> we're yeah, all eating true. and drinking our emotions. There's no more crying ever. <laughs> we well, reached the so bottom. I want, I mean, the, in the story, you talk about the curiosity and the, the desire to know. And I'm, I'm wondering, did you have like a fantasy? Was there like, a fantasy version of your life where you grew up with a mother that you imagined was yours? Like what, was there that in your mind? And, and if so, like how does the real version that you've gotten, how does that compare with that, you know, that picture? You know, I've never met a person who's adopted who fantasized about traits and characteristics and situations. It's never even occurred to me. It, it never yeah. occurred to me before I met her to think that about- That she would be a certain way. No, not at all. Not, not okay. in the least because everything else was like logistics. And then I did um, activism around adoptee rights for a long time. So there was also a lot of anger at the system, which is corrupt, um, like extremely corrupt in its origins and still today. Um, yeah. So it was never like for a long time, it wasn't, it didn't feel personal or emotional. And that could have been a way to keep all of that at arm's Protect length. Protect yourself. Yeah. Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. Cause you said in 2003, when they, you know, when the investigator said, look, you should prepare yourself. 
some of this might be fabricated. You said you were devastated, you know? Yes. Well, it's, you're right, because I said, I remember, I, I, you know, we just heard and I was like, I, I was despondent. I don't remember being despondent. Um, but I do remember because I had to become such a detective, um, feeling really stymied, like this just doesn't, there's nothing rational happening here. Um, mm -hmm. so I was still living in that sense, very far away from the emotions of it. Do you think like how much meeting Susan and finding your mother, how much of this, how, I guess, how much of what has been transformative in your life is is to do with her and how much is it that you you can know yourself differently knowing her like that it you know what i'm saying the differences yeah i think what do so you think? um yeah i i think i am transformed so it's really interesting because even though i just got done telling you how angry i was um at the system uh i when I met Susan and found out the circumstances of when she was pregnant, she wanted to keep me, there was going to be a marriage, he backed out. I mean, he was young, he was 19. Um, he, he backed out um, and then his parents said they wouldn't allow it. So she carried all this rage and anger for decades at them. Um, yeah. And she was even willing to just, you know, say like, look, let's just do it so that I can keep my baby and then we don't even have to stay together. Um, I don't know if she ever said that out loud, but, but where was I going with this? Um, because she had so much rage in her because she, unlike me, she never tamped down her emotions. She's irrepressible as you heard. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> even if she's having a really terrible day, there's just like this light emanating from her. But so I could see that she was angry and also just had been so hurt and was still hurt yeah. um, by the whole situation and by people who like conducted the situation. Um, and I told everybody explicitly, and I told myself, I have no anger at any of these people because I need to just like, this is my one time in life where I would need to be most vulnerable and least holding on to some preconceived notion. So I had to like very consciously sort of create myself as a blank slate, giving everything of myself and trying to receive everything from them. Hmm. I want to talk about, um, the use, like you are such a research-based, science-headed person. So the two things, one is just the use of 23andMe in, in the story and how it just accelerated everything. And then, and, and well, I guess technology, 23andMe mm -hmm. and Facebook. And then how, how, how this knowledge, all of a sudden having this knowledge of like, longevity on your maternal grandmother's side mm -hmm. or is it or is it paternal grand, grandmother but yeah uh, and then knowing that your birth um father passed very at a very early age um mm -hmm. you know all of that stuff that you to go from zero you know nothing 
no knowledge to just like this intense awareness of big um, heap, big heap of yeah. knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what was that like? Because because um, for someone who's so science minded, it's it was very satisfying. Um, yeah, it was really it was a great payoff. I'm not gonna lie. Um, <laughs> it, it was a great information payoff. Um, the people involved uh, were just and are so rewarding to meet and to know. Yeah, I don't, I, I think it also felt like a big triumph. Like, oh my God, I finally put all these pieces in place. Yeah. And you know, in some ways I think that amount of time had to pass because of the technology, but it was really not 23andMe or really the internet. It was just simply more data in a database as years went by. Hello. <laughs> this kid says he's, he's, he loves a happy ending. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it, it, it was really satisfying, but ultimately it came down to um, figurative shoe leather, just constantly looking in the right places and piecing information together. Kind of like how I've been watching that Michelle McNamara. <gasps> Same. Oh my God. Yes. I'll be gone in the dark. It's yes. so, I, I, I feel like you guys are kindred spirits. Yeah. I know. So I read the book. I bought the book like the week it came out and devoured it. And that, and then we just finished the show. And of course, I, Ron, yeah, Ron didn't read the book. And so I already knew how it was going to play out. And it was still so satisfying to hear all of her research methods and the recordings of her talking to other people um, who were in the true crime community and considered themselves, you know, community, oh, what do they call them? Amateur detectives. Murderinos. Oh, wait. Oh, oh yeah, yeah murderinos. Yes. <laughs> and, and it was very much the same way for me. Just, I think the payoff was magic, but also there was something really um, fascinating about the process of that, all that detective work as well. Well, so, and yeah, sorry. oh, I, I was going to say, yeah, absolutely. And just the fact that like your story has a happy ending and it's not just a happy ending in 2013, you know, when you have your meet cute and you tell us, you know, the story at Stoop, like it, it's the ending is just only, only you know, life, it's not even the ending. It's, it's just gone on and gotten better. And I feel like from the moment when you told the story in 2013, like it didn't have to like keep getting better. It could right. have been that like, oh, um, turns out a lot of these family are cuckoo or, you know, <laughs> oh, this, you know, turns out like we all are pretty damaged by this or whatever, you know what I mean? Yeah, like it, yeah. And yeah. Well, I think and that's what I love about like getting to talk to you now is like it's only gotten better. Yeah, it's amazing because when it was first happening, um, because I had done so much reading on everything, I sort of knew like, all right, we're in like a first date phase. A very yeah, I remember you telling phase. me, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, you're in like the oxytocin is blowing out the ass, you know? Yes, and yes. And then I would say to all of my new family, like, listen, I just want us to get to a level of normal, okay? Because that is like, we're on a high right now. It won't always yeah. be this way. And that's what it's settled into. But I don't want everybody to think like, it's a fairy tale, like I met them, I'm happy, I moved here, we're great, like, and the trend line is a continual 45 degree up. <laughs> um, 
in fact, recently I've come to realize that there's so much grief involved, types of grief yeah. that I didn't know about until I got into this reunion, interestingly. And there's not a lot of writing about good reunions because yeah. mostly when people are happy or content, they're not writing tell-alls about it. Um, yeah. yeah. And there's so few of us anyway. Um, there's only like a few million people of my age and my situation. Um, but so when I was listening to the story um, just now, I, you know, at the time I felt so happy um, but I heard my own voice, you know, I was not nervous. I did not have stage fright that night. And, and I thought I was actually cool as a cucumber. I felt the most confident I'd ever felt in my life. And clearly I was masking it because you can hear in my voice, the minute I open my mouth, I like the sobs are right there Yeah, yeah. to come out. Um, and then I was surprised at myself, like, what is even happening? I don't recognize any of these emotions. So you know, you're 44 years old or whatever, and you're having emotions that you couldn't possibly have ever had in your life before. Yeah. Um, and that almost literally no one you know has ever experienced anything like this. Hmm. Um, so it's like a giant vulnerability, a giant fear. And then I heard in my own voice, like so much pain um, that I was masking a lot of pain. And fast forward to now, it's like it's normal, it's the kind of normal that I wanted, right? My sister asked me to be her son's godmother and we see each other a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, Susan and I sat under a shade tree last Friday afternoon in her car drinking cocktails in the car just so that each of us could get out of our houses, right? So <laughs> it's normal, um, but there's also, I've come to realize recently like a, a style or a type of grief that I never knew could exist because um, I was talking to some other adoptees about it lately and we were all saying you know when you're in a reunion when it's a good reunion there's a type of grief in which you can be with your siblings and I'm talking about birth siblings birth family and they're all talking about Christmas 1989 or the Camaro remember that Camaro that so-and-so used to have or remember that barbecue, like all of their family memories, they have folded me into the family, but it started at a certain date. And so I am fully accepted, which is great. And I accept them, um, but I can never share their history, which is a whole other type of grief that I never expected. And I'm not saying I mope around about it i've just come to identify like oh that is the thing like whenever i see a picture of my three siblings i didn't grow up with on santa's lap let's say wow yeah and they all look like me you know and i have a picture like that from another from from my family so yeah. it's just there's so few words that exist in english for this type of uh Holding both, holding, yeah, it's like you're, you're holding the, the joy and the grief, and the, if they weren't so joyous now, and you didn't feel so much love for them now, the grief of missing what you did wouldn't be as great. It's like they're, they're intertwined. Yeah, yeah, yes, and I think one of the reasons I was so thrilled when 
my nephew was born, my sister's son is, you know, when I met Susan, of course I look like her. And when I met my three siblings, I look like them. But when I met Teddy, my nephew, he looks like me. Oh, and that's the first baby I have ever seen in my life. And I'm not young <laughs> to bear a family resemblance to me. And it was so, so poignant. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love Girl, that. that's awesome. I mean, you're, <laughs> I think I love what you think. I love what you say. I love what you feel like I, and you know, I'm so delighted. And I know Jessica is too, that we get to share this story no, um, I'm with, not delighted. With, no, you're not. <laughs> um, well, I love that. Yeah. I just, I'm sorry. I loved talking oh. about the story. I loved telling the story in front of the audience. And I loved doing it with Susan. And the fact that the three of us have been friends since before all of this transpired. Oh, my God. But I also it. remember, I remember when you found her on Facebook, I think I came over that day. I remember yes, just seeing you her. you did. Sitting with you outside. Yes, I left work and I went home and I was like, well, I'm drinking all the Prosecco in the house today. And you came (laughs) over and I think you had a glass with me. I probably did. I I remember and just, yeah, it was, it, to feel one fraction, minuscule fraction of what you felt like just sitting by your side with a computer was, was like a memorable experience for me. It's just, it's been profound to witness this. And I, the other thing that I like as a person who likes history and research and untold stories is I love that your story, it leads to, it can lead listeners if they're interested into the history of maternity homes in the U.S., into um, the history of adoption secrecy and corruption Mm -hmm. um, and like there is so much to be learned about those areas that have affected so many people, you know? And so I love the historical aspect of your, uh, you know, of everything you share as well. There's a saying old says that love is blind Still we're often told seek and you shall find So I'm going to seek a certain lad I've had Before we have to go, is there anything you else you want to say? No, no, I think can you Can you tell us? Can you tell us if Susan is still wearing a leotard and tights all the time? <laughs> she is not wearing a leotard and tights. We have both become fans of joggers. Oh, <laughs> very nice. It's the, it's the perfect pandemic, pandemic wear. That's yeah. right. That's right. <laughs> well, thank oh. you so much, Catherine yeah. Robertson. Thank and before. You. Before we head out, we want to thank The Wine Source, which has been a longtime sponsor of the Stu Podcast, is getting many a person through the pandemic um, with their vittles and libations. Um, We want to thank Maureen Harvey, who produces the podcast and makes us sound 
as good as we do. Um, <laughs> does the best she can with us. Um, you can find out more at soupstorytelling.com. And for a final message from us, we want to give a shout out to Trove here in Hamden, which is an amazing creation of Carmen Brock, who's a dear friend of ours, um, has been on the avenue in Hamden for 15 years and has succumbed to the pandemic as so many worthy creations have and will. And we want to just pay homage. Big time. Yeah, that is a that is a loss, but she will rebuild when it's safe to do so. And we will be back here in two weeks with more stories and more storytellers on Return to the Soup. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. Stay safe. Girls, they could-